Hello and welcome to our new podcast series, 10 Minutes More, Stories from the Experts by 10 Minute Medicine. This series will be an insight into various specialties, from what makes a good F1, the challenges and interesting stories from our experts. We're going to cover a series of specialties from both medicine and surgery, and this podcast is particularly directed at medical students and early career doctors. I hope you enjoy. Welcome to all of our listeners to another episode of 10 Minutes More, Stories from the Experts. My name is Sherwin Fernando. I'm the co-founder and president of 10 Minute Medicine. Now, uh, in the past, my, my dad always used to tell me that a surgeon was as simple as being a physician who operates. But um, the truth is, these days, the modern surgical trainee has to be very multifaceted. You've got to be a great clinician, a great surgeon, an academic, and an educator. And uh, this week, we're lucky to have a distinguished guest who I think embodies just that. So we have Mr. Ashwin Krishnamurthy, who's a upper gastrointestinal surgical registrar. Thank you very much um, for being with us today, uh, Ashwin. Can you tell us a little bit about yourself then to begin with? Yes, yeah, thank you very, very much for that kind introduction. Um, My name's Ashwin, I'm a... uh, ST5 in general surgery with a special interest in upper GI surgery. Um, I'm currently doing a um, a period of research, which will culminate in either an MD or a PhD. I haven't quite decided which. Um, and yeah, I work at University Hospital Coventry in Warwickshire currently. So yeah, that's what I'm doing. Fantastic. And uh, tell us what got you interested in general surgery in the first place what was that spark that set off uh, your career interest so I've always liked the interplay between elective and emergency surgery and I like I like a variety of things I get I get bored fairly easily so (laughs) I I like I wanted something which gave me a great variety of options and I tried to do a few different careers I looked into uh, going into to primary care to GP, which um, which I enjoyed, but didn't really offer much in the way of of practical um, procedures. I like to do things with my hands. Then I looked towards other things, like for example, uh, medicine. Being a physician and and being a gastroenterologist, I got interested in endoscopy, um, and I did. And I realised that quite wasn't quite for me either. I I just when I when I went into the operating theatre, there was a there was a buzz there was something about it that just just gave me the bug for surgery but beyond that um the, there were other surgical specialties that i looked at like urology or, or or ent i think um general surgery had more variability than 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 those for me there was a great variety of emergency complaints as well as elective complaints um and the opportunity for endoscopy uh ever-changing technology as well the use of uh, laparoscopic surgery really was something that attracted me to towards the field 
um, which uh, does happen in other specialties as well, like um, gynecology and, and neurology. Um, but I still feel that, that general surgery has the vast bulk of laparoscopic practice. And then moving forward into the next era of robotic surgery, I think it's also going to be at the forefront. So um, these were some of the things that attracted me towards general surgery. And um, I've never, I've not regretted it for, for one day. I've never looked back and I'm very, very happy doing what I'm doing. That's, uh, that's fantastic to hear. I mean, uh, exactly as you said, it's the gallbladder, the one day, the esophagus, the next day. Um, yeah. And that variety is, uh, I think, what makes a lot of people fall in love with, uh, with the career. Uh, I think it can also be quite intimidating for um, for many people to think about the breadth of uh, pathology involved in general surgery. So I guess it swings in roundabouts. Yeah, I think some people say you may you have to have a certain kind of character to do it. Some people say <laughs> you need to be a, a little bit masochistic and and sacri sacrificial. Um, I think I think to be honest, there's so much need for for general surgeons and and people doing general surgery and that's only going to increase that um you can be whatever type of of general surgeon you want to to be you can sort of make the career uh, your own every career requires hard work um and, and general surgery is no different it requires a lot of hard work and dedication so there's no way around that um but it's the enjoyment that comes with it that makes it worthwhile and um it, you don't necessarily have to be firing on all, all guns blazing, you know, to, doing, uh, doing, you know, the, the biggest operations um, in the biggest centers in, in the world. Uh, for example, you, you could, you can do a wide variety of things, for example, benign colorectal, benign upper GI, um, emergency surgery. There's, there's all sorts of different options within general surgery. Mm, absolutely. And there'll never be a time when, uh, when you don't need that sort of emergency uh, facility in terms of absolutely uh, every hospital yeah. every hospital in the in every small dgh will need a general surgeon um which is not the same of all specialties mm. um so so some other specialties will be will be centralized and you would have to work in in certain areas certain large cities for example that's not the case with our specialty mm. so that's a positive well, speaking of hard work and dedication, as you said uh, right at the start, you've embarked on a PhD or an MD. Tell us a little bit about the uh, exciting research you've been up to. So I'm looking into the early diagnosis of bowel cancer um, uh, and, well, significant bowel disease, actually, which encompasses bowel cancer, large polyps, inflammatory bowel disease, so almost more colorectal in theme. Um, the, the crux of my project is, is looking at, um, this is no secret, it's looking at uh, combining FIT tests, which are fecal immunohistochemical tests, which are already in widespread use in practice, um, more so since the COVID pandemic. It's the follow-up to the fecal occult blood test, which looks for the presence of blood in stools as an indicator of, of bowel disease. And it combines, um, my study is looking at combining FITs with VOX, which are volatile organic compounds, which are not in widespread practice, but have been around for a certain, 
for a certain number of years and are also a, a reflector, a marker of metabolic activity within the body. So essentially it comes down to looking at ways in which we can diagnose certain conditions earlier or less invasively um, without everyone needing a colonoscopy, for example, which is the gold standard at the moment. And it's a project which ultimately will be uh, used to inform um, policy or, or practice making, we hope, and hopefully will change practice. And it's something that's needed because of the increasing demands on the colonoscopy service and the increasing demands on, on the health service in, in general. So, yeah, it's a way of it's a way of changing how how we practice rather than just carrying on with what we've always done, which is something that's very, very close to my heart. That's an interesting theme you bring up of um, kind of the emergence or of preventative medicine. Do you think uh, as sort of uh, surgical trainees go on, of course, a lot of uh, a lot of them will be hoping to do a PhD. Do you think this is a sort of an emerging field in general with surgery that we should be paying close attention to sort of preventative yeah i think i think there's there's a subtle difference though between my project mine, mine is is rather not to do with prevent prevention but rather to do with early detection early mm. um early detection and diagnosis which is some so for example if you look at certain uh, uh, bowel cancer is not bad it can be picked up early if 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 you col colonoscope everyone which has its own problems but mm. for example some other cancers such as upper gi and pancreatic cancers are very very hard to pick up upper gi are easier than pancreatic because you can do an endoscopy and look directly for those lesions with the pancreas it's even more difficult to pick up uh, early uh, cancers and and the key is because they present in a very non-specific way so in the future it's going to become incredibly important to try and detect these cancers early it's, it's the only way in which i can see the the morbidity and mortality of these cancers improving if you look at for example the five-year survival of pancreatic cancer it's it's much it's poorer than the others so mm -hmm. um yeah so yeah, that's going to be very important. But what you mentioned as well, which is a preventative medicine, is is also incredibly important. And um, one of the problems, um, one of my consultants used to say, is that we don't talk to each other. We're not all as joined up as we use as we should be. And I think one of those things is quite close to to my heart, which is, for example. Um, uh, Pre preventing things in primary care um, needs more of a focus. For example, primary care is incredibly stretched at the moment. But for example, if we take, for example, bariatric surgery mm. can be one of the most um, beneficial um, quality of life improving uh, operations that there is. And, um, and we depend on GPs in primary care to send us referrals for those. There's different tiers, tier one to four, for weight loss management, but weight uh, gain or weight loss Im impacts on everything in in, um, in patients, from diabetes to to cancer risk. Um, it's really something that we need to to tackle. And at the moment, we don't have a good drug to to enable weight mm -hmm. loss. Yeah. Surgery is 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 in my opinion one of the best, if not the the best options for it. So um, it, when you talk about preventative medicine, that's what it makes me think of as a surgeon and yes i think it's going to be very very important in the future right right 
Um, now you mentioned sort of ST5, um, well, well, yeah. well into your career as a surgical registrar, and I'm sure you've seen plenty um, in your time in practice. For uh, for us far more junior uh, listeners, can you tell us about an interesting case you've come across in all these years of practice that's really you know stuck in your mind for one reason or another? Um. Yeah, I can, as you say, I can think of, of uh, several. Um, one, one that will will uh, was quite interesting. Interesting to me as a fa fairly junior trainee. It's it's um, it's not a groundbreaking case or anything like that. But my first gallstone ileus will always uh, remain ah. fondly um, a fond memory in my mind. Um, one of the first operations I performed uh, solo skin to skin and um, so a, a 78 year old man admitted with a small bowel obstruction um, having had known gallstones and uh, a failed attempt at laparoscopic cholecystectomy and what had happened was the gallstone had fistulated from the gallbladder into the duodenum traveled down the small bowel and got blocked so we carried out it's a very simple operation to do in in essence um, once once you've done a few it becomes one of the mo most simple ones that you do but it the reason i i bring it up is it's it's very very satisfying we carried out a midline laparotomy uh, walked the small bowel to the point of obstruction made a little cut on top of the small bowel called an enterotomy pop the small bowel uh, pop the stone out literally squeeze it out and it comes out with a little pop and that's your operation done. You can just sew back up the hole that you've made, the enterotomy, and the patient gets better from there. And it's amazing how much they get better from the point where they're vomiting, in pain, dehydrated. To in two or three days' time, they're they're ready to leave the hospital. So um, that sticks in my mind because it's to me an illustration of how how general surgery can really. Um, achieve a quick turnaround for patients and get them fe feeling better very quickly and that's that's an emergency surgery um, mm -hmm. characteristic I mean first and foremost it's it's good to know these things exist you read about them in textbooks and you kind of you know you almost can't imagine it happening um, but uh, secondly yeah, I've, I've done four or five goldstone ileases, ah. so they, they definitely do they definitely do do happen um, I suspect because in in our country um, we we don't treat gallstone we we we're overrun with gallstones and the mm. NHS is under too much demand to get them sorted out or or for whatever reason they they get to that stage. For example, if you look in other countries like Australia, they some of my colleagues have never seen them, so mm. so there might be something. Um, so we to expect a second wave of gallstone ileuses after the COVID. <laughs> <laughs> after all these, COVID yeah, I haven't seen, I haven't seen it yet. <laughs> I haven't seen it yet. Um, I think you brought up two interesting points. Number one, as you said, um, the beauty of surgery is being able to uh, almost see immediate results. But um, yeah. another thing I think is uh, important to bear in mind is that the uh, the beauty of being able to see the pathology right in front of you. Um, you you mm. can literally see the gallstone that has caused the obstruction. It all makes sense in your head. Um, yeah. And it's must be quite nice that your uh, differential diagnosis was, was correct. 
in laparotomy. Which yeah, absolutely, absolutely. And that, and and that relates to another beauty of emergency surgery and indeed elective surgery, which is that after you've you've been doing it for a while and you you sort of follow your patients through from from when they walk in through the front door to then when you investigate them with um, x-rays or bloods or a CT scan or whatever, and then you make the decision to operate, you you consent them for the risks and benefits, and then you perform the operation, you see the actual pathology that was contributing to the signs and symptoms that you witnessed when they walked in the front door. You resolve that, fingers crossed, and then they get better afterwards. And after a while, you... I mean, these days we're we're very very investigation heavy, even compared to when when I started practicing, when it wasn't widespread to get a CT scan in every patient before taking them to theatre. But I think after a while, you realise that it's not the CT scan, but it's your history and examination which will, which are key and important, and that degree of pattern recognition really really comes into play during your training. And it's incredibly satisfying to be able to correctly diagnose a patient just based on history and exam. And I don't think there's many other specialties that that can do it like that. For example, I, I will very often take um, a child to theatre without um, even seeing their bloods if I'm convinced that they have acute appendicitis or perforated appendicitis. And that's because of the history and examination skills that you develop doing this job over a period of time, which I think is very satisfying. Yep, I totally agree. The old ways are sometimes the best ways, and there's nothing uh, sort of that substitutes Absolutely. your basic skills. Um, how often have we seen uh, that one consultant who can reduce the hernia that nobody else can, and then brags about it Absolutely. in the mess? Um, Absolutely. <laughs> so, uh, moving on from uh, sort of, uh, well, rather staying on all the experience you've had, a lot of our listeners, maybe not surgically orientated, but um, still going to be F1s or F2s in general surgery. In your experience, what makes a good foundation trainee on a general surgery block? Um, I, I think that's a very, very good question. I think um, ultimately the, the two, the one, the first greatest thing is that they have to care about the job and they have to care about their patients. And I think if you have that characteristic in mind, everything else will flow from there. But essentially what's needed is hard work and enthusiasm and a willingness to learn. Um, surgeons, I feel in my ex anecdotal experience are, are very good teachers or trainers and are generally quite keen to teach. Obviously it depends on the pressures that they're under at that time. So no, no one will expect an F1 or F2 coming into surgery to, to know everything. Um, they may expect some little level of basic knowledge, but that can all be trained and, and taught. And even in the, the operating theatre, everything that we learn can be trained and, and taught. It might be it might be a little bit mystifying when you first walk into an operating room for a junior to know all the names of the instruments and to know all the names of the techniques. Um, but ultimately it's a it's a practical subject. Uh, just like anything else, and it can be very easily taught. So the most important things for me for an F1 or F2 is hard work, enthusiasm, willingness to learn, and lastly, organisation. Organisation is key. Mm -hmm. 
Echoing the words of uh, our colleague who we had on the show for the colorectal segment, um, Duarca Samra, nobody's born a surgeon. And I think we can both agree that with that. It's all about the hard work and uh, it's all about learning the craft over, over the many, many years. Absolutely. And I think, I think something, something that's very frustrating is when, uh, personally frustrating is when uh, pe people tell me they don't feel that um, they have it in them to, to perform sur surgery. I think my colleague Duwaka is absolutely right. Nobody's born a surgeon. There is no one personality type that you must be in order to be a surgeon. It, it, is, it is purely about hard work and, and anyone can be taught the skills necessary. Um, so, so yeah, people shouldn't limit themselves. Um, it is purely the, the enjoyment that, and, and passion and, and enthusiasm to work hard that um, is required to succeed in this field, is my feeling. Now, uh, we could go on for hours and hours about uh, all the fantastic parts of general surgery, but there's no, uh, it's no secret that there's certainly going to be hard days. And uh, in your sort of experience, what, what's the hardest yeah. part of general surgery? Yeah, I think, um, I think the hot, it's, it's a difficult, mm. uh, the, I mean, the, the on calls are, are, are demanding, but they're very fulfilling. So that's not necessarily a, a, a hard point. Uh, the hardest bit, I think, is, um, I mean, uh, th there's also, for example, the, some people might say the toll it takes on family life because it needs to be, um, you, you need to, to learn a skill over several years and might involve a lot of time away from home. I think, I think that's been true in the past. I think that's now changing with the Royal College and deaneries having more of, um, more of an awareness over the tolls that our, um, our, our craft takes on family life. So for example, I now see less than full-time trainees who are, who are male, um, lots of female, less than full-time trainees. And I think it's becoming more and more accepted. Um, the training may take longer, but, but um, I think the impact family life will be less in, in the future. And I, and uh, I, I have a very fulsome family life still and, and life away from the field. So, so, Perhaps 10 years ago, I may have said that, but um, I think that's changing. I think the actual hardest thing about the job is um, when you care so much about your work and you're so passionate about your work, initially when things don't go right, aka complications, mm. um, that can be the hardest thing to deal with. And it is a skill that you have to learn to be able to deal with your own complications. It's an old adage. Um, everybody has complications and if you don't have complications it's either because you are lying or because you're not operating enough so unfortunately everyone has complications in the, in this field but the way you manage them is is the true hallmark of a great surgeon and that's the that's something that needs to, to be learned and also the the ability to not let it affect you I think in the beginning, I found it very, very difficult to to get over some of the complications that I caused. For example, you know, um, you know, patient dies um, after an operation that we carried out. That, that 
um, that may have weighed on my mind a certain amount. Mm. I think these days I'm I'm seeing it more as an accepted part of the job, unfortunately, and it's not. It's often not a, a personal failure. It's um, a combination of factors. It's it's always a combination of factors, and so um, yeah, I think that's the hardest part mm. of the job. It's um, I I I've thought a lot about that about complications and. Uh, I think uh, it's sort of the ultimate test of almost every aspect of um, yourself as a clinician. Number one, yeah. yes, you've got to think on your feet about uh, sort of how to manage this complication, but then there's that massive sort of communicational challenge as well, yes. sort of yes. discussing the complication with the family, sometimes who may yes. be quite, quite upset about that. Yes, um, and, I th- and, and with time you learn that that's mm-hmm. when your communication before the operation becomes important as well mm-hmm. in order to circumvent these these uh, complications. It's it, lessons that can sometimes only be learned the, the hard way, but you're absolutely right. It's a clinical challenge as well as a communication and, and a people challenge as well. But it is, it is ultimately doable and, and no specialty is hard, is 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 away from complications. Every specialty has complications, and in every specialty, unfortunately, there is harm done to patients, and that goes right across the board from GP to to A and E to to whatever psychiatry. Mm-hmm. Um, any specialty you do is is not is not uh, free of these complications. But for us, it just seems a bit more visceral because it's something that we're physically doing to the patients. Mm. But yeah, I think uh, that's a fantastic way to wrap it up. We've gone right back to the start where we mentioned the surgeon's got to be a very multifaceted uh, operator, um, sort of an academic, a teacher. um, And we've hit the nail on the head by saying a great communicator as well, both pre and post operatively. Um, Any sort of closing remarks, uh, Ashwin? Uh, I hope it was useful to everybody and um, wish everybody the best in their future careers, whatever yeah, it may be. Certainly, certainly will be useful, certainly was useful for me, um, and I'm sure it will be for our listeners. But that's all we have time for today. So, again, thank you uh, very much to my uh, special guest today, Mr. Ashwin Krishnamurthy. Um, as always, uh, to our listeners, look out for our sort of foundation year educational content on our website to help you uh, become that good F1, F2 on your surgical block. And until next time, um, this was Sherwin Fernando, and thank you very much for listening. time to listen to our podcast if you enjoyed do consider dropping us a like on facebook or heading over to our website and signing up to our mailing list to be kept up to date with all future releases otherwise i hope you enjoyed and goodbye